Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? I'm Nikki Croce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck. On today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Christine Scott, and Christine is a nationally recognized trainer and internationally known speaker on conflict management. Her mission is to help others skip the mistakes that she made and show people that we are all capable of bringing our best selves into hard situations, which I personally respect and appreciate a ton, um, just knowing my own history with conflict management and how far I've come. I love that there is somebody like you and there are people like you out there in the world doing this. So welcome to the show, Christine. I'm happy to have you here. Thank you so much. When we last spoke, I learned a little bit about how you began your business around conflict resolution, but I'd love for you to share with our listeners how you landed in this place of building really your work life around helping people solve problems in a productive way. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I admit I really was terrible. I sucked at conflict. <laughs> um, I had these great ideas that I was going to help out street kids by, you know, doing this AmeriCorps job and being Susie's social worker from the suburbs. I was going to come in and save these poor young lives. And <laughs> oh my gosh, I got my butt handed to me. <laughs> I feel like uh, plenty of us could have ended up in that situation very easily. Yeah, um, there is something that they taught me that just radically shifted my perspective. Well, first off, I was screwing up left and right. Every time there was a conflict, I came out of the gate way too aggressive or way too passive. When you say um, too aggressive, do you feel like it was coming from a place of reactivity? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I didn't understand the biology, but basically, mm -hmm. you know, my mammal self was showing up to meet the challenge you know, complete with the hackles and the big voice and the authoritative commanding presence. <laughs> and isn't that what most of us do? It's it's so yeah. instinctive. It's so instinctive. And as you can imagine, people living on the streets really didn't appreciate that version of me. Um, that never went well. <laughs> um, or I'd get way too passive. I'd get very quiet and like, oh, whatever you say, oh, never mind about those rules I'm supposed to be enforcing. And either one of those happened. And I never felt good about the outcomes and I never felt good about my role in the situation but I started just kind of getting humble and watching how the young people I served handled conflict there were obviously people who were posturing and threatening and all of that stuff but what I noticed is that they weren't nearly as reactive as I was that's interesting their, their threat assessor was usually much more spot on like they could tell which situations were lethal I was just responding to everything like it was lethal. So when you were working with people who um, were dealing with conflicts that it sounds like generally speaking would be much different than what we experience in sort of a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. safe suburban lifestyle. Um, they, as you mentioned, you know, people who were living out on the streets or people who had come from more challenging backgrounds. And 
What do you think it was that on a visceral level, they, they were able to understand the need to react differently, better than we could? A lot of it was just constant exposure, right? So, so not only are they be, being exposed to threats every day, but their sense of personal slight was much different. They're looking at what's going to kill me, right? They're, they're looking at survival. Whereas mm -hmm. most of us, you know, we're walking around with these great big egos and identities and status and rank. And what we don't understand is our body um, takes a threat to our rank or our status or our ego the same way as it takes a rank, a threat to our, our physical well-being. Mm -hmm. So, so we're, we're acting out of the same biology, like, oh my gosh, you've just threatened my, you know, my status as a, as a white woman who owns her own house. <laughs> right? <laughs> Right. Um, but it's actually not a thing that's going to kill me. Right. Well, it's interesting, too, because I think about, um, you know, the way that I certainly when I was younger could be really explosive when I would get angry. It was something that I could feel brewing inside of me. And I would say to people, it's not that I have a short fuse. It's that I have a long fuse that burns really quickly once it's lit. And so it's sort of like the compound effect of the the stressors and the threats and then it just takes you know one little push of the button to have all of that emotion come out and mm -hmm. i think um you know you mentioned the biology of it and part of what you're saying i feel like is the knowing your body well enough to understand the physical reaction the the physical cue that's coming to tell you mm -hmm. that you can react differently if you surpass what your reptilian brain is telling you to do. If you if you give it just right. like a split second longer than mm -hmm. what you feel you should do, then you can sort of be more cerebral and intentional about how you respond. Um, so can you elaborate a little bit more on, on the biology behind it? Sure, yeah. So, so we have this thing in our brain that basically overrides us. Um, but when the override happens, we don't sense it. So the, we have this amygdala and it releases the cortisol and the adrenaline and the body starts getting into this hyper alert mode. And the part of our brain that figures it out last is actually our, our logic center. That's and not our convenient. Logic, <laughs> our logic center is like going, oh, there's a thing that's going to kill me. I need to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. But it really hasn't ever gotten that message about what that thing is. It's just mm -hmm. knows that the body's on hyper alert. So what I tell people is the moment that you start to feel that little bit of edginess, set a firm limit about what you can and can't do in the situation. That's like, good advice. Often it will be somebody who's just made this totally unrealistic request or demand for your time. Right. Mm -hmm. And you just say, Hey, that's a great question. Can I get back to you? And all of a sudden you've put this thing in a box and it's no longer, you know, are no longer the cornered animal, right? You've packed it away and you've mm -hmm. created some type of structure or boundary around you giving it your attention. Do you see that as somewhat similar to compartmentalization? No, not in the sense that you are basically giving yourself permission to have boundaries. Mm -hmm. A lot of that reactivity that you talked about, like first this thing pushes your button and then that thing pushes your button is you not tuning into, oh, this is a thing that my body actually feels like I'm being cornered by, mm -hmm. right? 
Like, what's the point at which I no longer feel like I have options that I've got to deal with this thing I don't want to deal with? Once you feel like it's not a choice, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to come out of the corner fighting, <laughs> right? So yeah. you have to like kind of engineer it so that the message to your body is, no, I got this, I'm in control. And you do that by how you frame the situation. You also do that by how you breathe. You can reset your body when you start to feel those things taking over. Mm-hmm. There's little tips that I teach people how to do that. One of my favorites is called the neurovascular hold. You basically have one hand on your forehead and one hand behind your head, and mm-hmm. you apply gentle pressure for about 30 seconds. Add some deep breathing with that, and you've totally short circuited the body's fight, flight, freeze response. So it's interesting, um, Christine, too, to think about that. I really love the way that not only sort of the mental regulation that we need to have to be able to manage conflict is what you're talking about, but also that physical response that helps us create emotional regulation. So like, how do we get back to being present in our body? How do we give ourselves the physical space and energy to adapt to the experience when something inside of us is cueing us to react there for lack of a better term as i said before impulsively it's almost like we erupt before we even know what's happening right and so right. when when we're able to acknowledge that inkling that something's coming you recognize the perceived threat and then you acknowledge okay i can react one of two ways here which way is it going to be we do have the free will if we have the understanding of how to manage that emotional regulation But the hardest part is knowing when to trigger that Mm -hmm. response to emotionally regulate instead of just leaning into that feeling that you have to fire on all cylinders. Right, right. Yeah, I tell people you have these five seconds to decide whether you're going to lean in, lash out, or kick the can down the road, Mm -hmm. right? You have those three options. Mm -hmm. Never lean in when you're not resourced. It's just like CPR first aid. Do I have all of the energy it's going to take? to have this conversation right now. Oh, okay. I don't. So I'm going to kick it down the road. I'm going to reschedule and I'm going to get those resources and bring them to that situation. That's really good advice because I feel like that was something that I really have learned to do recently. And when we originally spoke, I think I mentioned this to you that the first conflict that my wife and I had, it was seemingly minor in retrospect. I don't think we've had really any blowups, but I feel like a big part of that is because When I was in my last relationship, which was very psychologically abusive, I was getting gaslit all the time. So I became very easily triggered. The perceived threat was much higher. And trying to convince somebody that you're not crazy when they're trying to convince you that you are crazy is extremely frustrating. So when you're in a situation where you know you're not being threatened by that person who you have a conflict with. I was able, thankfully, through my own work in therapy, recognizing I needed to manage my anger more effectively and resolve conflict more effectively, was I said to my my now wife, we had just started dating at the time, you know, I need five minutes. I need to go downstairs. I just, I'm not, I can't have this conversation right now. And I was really proud of myself in that moment and after the fact, because Mm -hmm. by the time I had come back up, she also said, I'm really glad that you gave that space because I needed it too. And I only found out since we last spoke, by the way, I found out that when that happened, 
when I was downstairs taking my time and she was upstairs taking her time that she'd actually been looking for flights to go home because we were in a long distance relationship. I was like, are you kidding me? I didn't even know that you were like that pissed off about it that you were. She said my immediate response was like, I need to exit the situation. I need to leave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that she actually wanted to leave. And it wasn't like I wanted her to leave. But mm -hmm. it was we, we established that the way that I historically have resolved conflict is to be like, we're talking about this now. We need to resolve it. Let's do it. Come on. We have a problem. Solve it now because the sooner we solve it, the sooner I don't have to deal with it anymore. And her response was cut and run, like yeah. avoid. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so it's really interesting to see how when you have people who have very different responses to conflict resolution just innately how important it is to communicate that you feel those things so then if you when you inevitably have mm -hmm. a conflict again you can speak to each other more intentionally about hey i need some time or space or yes i'm upset about this but i can't talk about it right now because i know if i talk about it right now i'm going to explode right, right. and nobody yeah. wants that because that doesn't yeah. end well for any of us yeah. and so i find it really fascinating how you know, you grow up and I think a lot of times we're taught to resolve conflict by talking through how you feel about things. But I don't feel like when I was younger that the part that really is important is to understand that you might not be dealing with a one-to-one -one situation where somebody's response is the same as yours. So if you're having a conflict with somebody who responds differently than you, the way that you want to handle it might not be the way that they want to or even can. So mm -hmm. what's your perspective on how people with different ways of coping with conflict can actually interact effectively with each other? I believe you said there were multiple styles of, is it conflict are, management? I can't remember. Well, there's there's these natural kind of things that we lean on mm -hmm. and the story that you shared in that story of, of you and your wife, one of you is being what I call aggressive reactive mm -hmm. right like oh we got to get in here we got to get it done it's in front of us right now we're just going to plow right through it right yeah. okay so that's aggressive what i call aggressive reactive and then the other person is like passive avoidant like mm -hmm. oh do we have to do this now and oh my god you know this mm -hmm. feels like too much mm -hmm. both of those are fueled by all of that adrenaline and cortisol that's a part of that fight flight freeze response mm -hmm. system so in either one of those, that timeout that you gave you guys was actually really smart because if you're not stopping that hack from taking over your body, you have about 20 minutes of being worthless, 20 minutes of that adrenaline and that cortisol making you super aggressive, super passive, and nothing good is going to come out of I was that. Say, it's just not productive. It's and I feel like productive. once I changed my mindset from feeling like I have to win a fight to I want it to be a productive discussion mm -hmm. the entire world opened up <laughs> to how I could handle things differently it's like yes. what is the outcome that you're desiring not what mm -hmm. do I need to do in this moment to feel validated because what I need to feel validated it might be fair but it also might not be it might just be something that is intrinsic and I need to manage that myself and this discussion isn't going to do anything for that mm -hmm. so yeah. it, it it makes me wonder, you know, what are the other ways that people potentially interact in, in conflicts mm -hmm. that are different than what either my wife or I have historically done or continue to do? Well, there are other ways that are not biologically triggered, that mm -hmm. are more socially engineered. Okay. okay. So, so there are the folks that are aggressive reflective, right? 
Like they're very brainiacs and they, they will logic their way through anything and they'll make you feel stupid, but maybe not hurt. Do you think right. it's sort of condescending? Um, more like they see conflict as a, as a logic problem or as a math equation. You all need to get in line. This is the way it's got to be. Mm-hmm. This is the solution to our problem. And, and the problem isn't about the relationship. It's not about the people. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't feel collective. It doesn't feel like a solution that everybody agrees on. Do you feel like um, that's um, almost taking too much of an objective view to it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like you need yeah. to be somewhat objective. So you're not so tied to what you sort of desire the outcome to be, but not so objective that you're only thinking of it almost clinically. Like, how do mm-hmm. I solve this problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because conflict at its best is a relationship saying, hey, I want to grow. A relationship saying, we, we've gotten to this point, but we're not going to get any further until we figure out how to handle this tough thing together. Right. So when somebody does this kind of aggressive reflective thing, like, well, I'm in charge and I've got all the solutions, that's, that doesn't address the relationships we need for growth. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I see a lot is aggressive social, where I use my cachet and the points and how people feel about me or that I have a higher rank in the organizational hierarchy, you know, to just to use those points to get this thing fixed. Again, I'm, I'm kind of making the calls. I'm not really collaborating. I'm not really listening. Mm-hmm. It's not the win-win that, that you are talking about, like real conflict resolution. Everybody feels number one, that they're understood when it's over. Number two, that they have more trust for the people in the room. Right. Yeah, that's so important. And whatever brought this conflict to bear isn't going to happen again. It's interesting that you say that too, because how many people, I would say, especially in a family dynamic, um, Mm -hmm. comes to mind first and foremost, the two sides of a couple where you're having a different fight, but it's really the same fight every time. Yep. Yep. It's like somebody's not getting Mm -hmm. the point that this is not about you know the thing that you left in the kitchen or the way that you did that whatever the other day right it's the fact that somebody leaves either not feeling heard or seen or maybe that the other person doesn't recognize why they're feeling conflicted to begin with and Mm -hmm. it's really eye-opening to be a fly on the wall in those situations when I do see them now because I just kind of want to shake people and be like, come on. Like, it's like, aren't you sick of it? Yeah. Surely you must be. Yeah. 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 And a lot of times it's tempting to blame your partner. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, well, if they would just blah, 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 then everything would be great. And then I remind him, okay, like, look at, these are the three things that you want to look for, for a conflict to be resolved. And just because you've been getting your way about leaving a mess in the kitchen every night, doesn't mean it's resolved. Right. Right. Well, because silent um, resentment's a real thing. Oh, yeah. 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 And then the the fifth style of conflict is passive social, where I'm going to be very passive, but I'm going to gossip about you behind your back. And I'm going to use my social cachet to make you feel bad, to make you feel some guilt or some pressure. But I'm never going to talk to you to your face. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it, it's interesting because you said those three primarily are are more the construct of conflict and the environments that we're in more so than that innate reaction to something. Right. Right. So yeah. do you have 
perspective or information um, on on how those types of conflict were created, I guess, within society, like what the Mm. impetus for those types Mm -hmm. of reactivity are? Well, here's my theory. You know, thank you for allowing me to be (laughs) a little brainiac for a second. We have a ranking system Mm -hmm. and we believe that we're either above or below everybody that our brain scans and, Mm -hmm. and rates according to um, gender, sexuality, race, owning class, blah, 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 all of these things that we- I'm sure age at. factors in there age, too, right? Generational. Yep. Mm-hmm, yep. So we're constantly seeing, are, am I above or below this person on the hierarchy? And so a lot of these socialized constructs around conflict are about winning because we see it as this, you know, kind of, you've got to outdo everybody. You've got to outrank them. You've got to win. It's a power dynamic. It's a power dynamic. So as I looked at that, because this is something, you know, I'm, I'm a bully in recovery. I used to be way too aggressive and um, always get my way, but it cost my relationships. And as I looked at that, I started to redefine what power was for me. And what I realized is like, I could outrank everybody in the room and always be the boss and always be right. And always like, you know, use whatever skills to win mm-hmm. the argument kind of strong arming people yeah but no one trusts me no one's going to show up to my birthday party <laughs> <laughs> and and that doesn't get me anywhere right um mm-hmm. but we have all of these work hierarchies and these social hierarchies that perpetuate these social constructs that conflict is a win-lose i would say that i think poor conflict resolution <laughs> An inability to manage conflict effectively is what has actually led us down the path that we're on right now, where the power structure at, um, you know, a corporate level, at a political level, and even familial hierarchies, um, Mm -hmm. it's just taking away from our ability to be more progressive with how we just approach life, innovation, our day-to-day, anything, because we get so consumed by these little sort of annoyances that really just expand into such greater conflict and mm-hmm. what's the word I'm looking for? Entrenchment. Yes. Yes. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah. And it's just mm-hmm. such a shame because it feels like a waste of our potential, you know, to, yeah. to be stuck in this loop of a power grab and and for what purpose? Because I do feel like people have so much more potential when we're capable of working uh, in harmony together as human beings, whether that's in schools or we're in work environments or just out in the public and we're being good humans to each other. You know, it it doesn't Mm -hmm. take a lot. And I think that because we've been so it's been so ingrained in us that you have to win the argument. If you don't win the argument, you're weak or you're not as smart or whatever it might be, then now we're also applying shame to the fact that you've lost. Yep. Yep. So from your perspective, what do you think is really the key driver behind most conflict? I know this mm-hmm. is a very loaded question because there's so many different types of conflict. Right. Right. But um, just broadly speaking, do you have thoughts on what the key driver behind most conflict is? I think it is our own insecurities right? Like whatever, there's a difference between who we really are and the, the, the person that we project out and we want other people to see. Mm-hmm. 
And the bigger that difference is, the more gap there is for somebody to get in there and say or do something that just hooks into a belief we have that we're not measuring up. Mm-hmm. We're either not measuring up to ourselves or we're not measuring up to somebody else's expectations of us mm-hmm. or the expectations that we've been told our whole life we should meet, even mm-hmm. if it has no real relevance in how we exist in the world. And it's hard to know that because it, it feels so fixable. It is very fixable. And as I started to deconstruct what I believed about power and, and my role in my workplace, I started leaning in every time I thought somebody was mad at me or didn't like me. Mm-hmm. I, I just started asking them, hey, what's going on? You kind of gave me a funny look in the staff meeting. I'm just wondering if, if I did something to step on your toes. And 90% of the time, it was not about me. I love that you do that, that you've done that, because uh-huh. it's part of what I've done as well. Mm-hmm. And I remember this moment where I had asked my wife, um, this was when we moved in together. She had made dinner and I was like, yeah, give me a couple minutes. Give me a couple minutes. And she doesn't usually cook. So I didn't know how important it was for her, for me to be like ready when she was ready. Mm-hmm. And um, I could see the look on her face and neither one of us are good at hiding the energy. So it, it's like part of the reason we have to acknowledge it is because you can't hide it. So mm-hmm. the tension's just going to be palpable and present. And you're just going to have to exist in the tension if you don't acknowledge it. And so this was the first time where I was kind of like, hey, are you mad at me? And of course, I don't want her to say yes, because if she says yes, then shit. Now I have to deal with that because you're mad at me about something. And she looked down and then like looked at me and said, yeah. And I was like, really happy that she was honest, but simultaneously conflicted with myself Mm -hmm. about, damn it. Now I have to now I have to figure out how to resolve this because I don't know what the issue is. Right. And so to your point, part of it is being willing to be uncomfortable with the response that you get when you confront somebody about conflict that might arise because it can so much be about what we're telling ourselves and not what somebody else feels or thinks and it takes a lot to have the strength of mind and the conviction to say i'm going to put myself in an uncomfortable situation best case scenario it's nothing worst case scenario I asked the question, so I need to be ready for the answer. Mm-hmm. And best case scenario, I'm going to learn something new about yeah. my, my partner today that's totally going to help our relationship in the future next time she cooks. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're totally right. Yes, we'll really appreciate listening to this episode, Christine. You're right. And I think that it's really interesting how people have gotten to a place where, you know, I know some of the work that you do with your business is with other companies and helping people Mm -hmm. with their employees and things like that. And that's a place where it can be really hard to raise concerns that there's conflict or to create tension with coworkers because you're worried about getting fired. It's your livelihood. Mm -hmm. This is a much different sort of emotional intensity that comes with it because the threat is possibly just within the environment that you're working in. It's between you and this other person or other people, but it could also be a threat to your ability to survive and sustain the other aspects of your life. Mm -hmm. So what is it like to be in that position and helping businesses and employees and leaders through those types of situations? Well, what I see right now in the workplace is a big generational divide. Mm -hmm. So we've got millennials and we've got Gen Zers 
who are looking for collaboration, who are looking for having value for their voices, they weren't raised on the same crap that my generation was raised on, which is you have to do your time before, you know, you're valuable to the organization, right? Thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. Because I think that we as, I'm an elder millennial and Mm -hmm. Gen Z also, you know, there's this desire for transparency and also to really hone in on our emotional intelligence because Mm -hmm. we can feel things and we do recognize things. So when somebody's, I'll use like my parents or, or other bosses that I've had who don't want to address something because it's uncomfortable versus the other elder millennial manager that I have now where it's like, okay, I have to tell you that I'm feeling uncomfortable with this. And I know it's going to be uncomfortable for you to have to talk to me about this, but at least we know that the conversation's happening and there's not this feeling right. of you're right. getting slighted because somebody doesn't want to have the conversation. You're exactly right. And, you know, I was raised on a lot of ageism by the baby boomers who supervised me when I started mm-hmm. my career. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there are people in my generation that are trying to pass on that same ageism to the people mm-hmm. we supervise. And many people are getting pushback on that. And I think the great resignation was a symptom of younger folks just saying, hey, I want transparency. I, I want collaboration. I, I want to know that I can count on you and that I, I'm not going to like put in 10 years of my life for an organization that I don't feel is invested in me. Totally. Growth, right. And, and so the standards are, are shifting and some employers are figuring it out and some are not. And I've been hired by both of those types and um, it's a palpable difference. Of course, you can tell which ones I'm more excited about. <laughs> well, probably the ones who are, are really embracing it, right? Yeah, yeah. And who are really listening to the people that, that they employ and that the people they serve. Um, and conflict response is the same, the dynamics are the same, the lessons are the same, whether you're dealing with a customer or a partner, the same mm-hmm. tricks work. The only difference is your motivation. And what I tell people who are dealing with conflict in a workplace, even if you never see this person again, because you are working as an elevator operator at the Seattle Space Needle, mm-hmm. and you see thousands of people every day, many of whom you'll never see again, think about how you want to see the people you serve. Because if you start to get burned out and disgusted by these throngs and parade, endless parade of upset, angry, hostile customers, you're not going to live your job three months from now. You're not going to be in your job three years from now, right? For your own sanity, (laughs) find the lean in, find out what you like about these people. Right. So that the 10% of them that are annoying are not going to get under your skin. I love that you said that because so much of my career up until now has really been spent at companies that some of them put on the facade that they valued you or there maybe was some element of belief in their own minds that they they truly valued you. But having been slighted by companies of various sizes, small and, and quite um, sizable, the thing that has always stood out to me and what I say when I leave a job is, first of all, I know when it's time to go because I can feel it. It's that sense of 
I'm not going to resolve this conflict, right? You try to communicate what you need. You're not getting it. They don't particularly care. So you're not going to get it. And then once you make that decision to leave, the thing that I always take with me and that I feel so incredibly grateful for are the relationships with the people who I was able to, to forge some camaraderie with during those experiences, because you do relate the same way, or if you have conflict, you can address those things with each other. But it, it really goes to show the importance of a person to person loyalty mm-hmm. and not in the ladder climbing type of way, but in the genuine, like on a very human level, being mm-hmm. transparent and loyal to each other. So then when you leave, you know, you still can have positive relationships with those people. Mm-hmm. And it goes a long way in helping form just your overall perspective on as you said, those types of collaboration in the future too, because mm-hmm. you can take those lessons learned and bring them to other places and and try to help other businesses grow more effectively, or even just right now being part of a company that is so open and values the opinions of its employees, not just for the sake of saying they do, but really genuinely cares and being able to say, you know, it's not easy to have these conversations, but we're doing it. I, I respect an employer who's willing to sit down and take it on the chin just as much as I respect an employee who will do the same. Right. Yeah. And when we talked earlier about this kind of social uprising and, and will things ever change or are folks just going to keep on building their trenches? Mm-hmm. It's actually the younger generations that give me hope that things are changing. People are less interested in entrenchment. I feel and, the same way. And, you know, I see all these hopeful signs, right? That people are starting to look at, okay, what could be a win-win here? Mm -hmm. We might not agree politically, but like, we don't have to be hating on each other. Well, you know, it's, it's funny that you said that because since Marianne Williamson uh, noted that she's going to be running for president in 2024, I've been paying a bit more attention to her content because there's been media blackouts on her. And I've been wanting to, I want to hear what the options are, you know? Mm -hmm. And One of the things that she spoke so well about was how we need to be able to listen to each other to be able to fix all of the things that are broken. And it's Mm -hmm. not an easy task, but you can't sit here and be on such drastically opposing sides on issues that don't really affect us and never willing to talk about the things that do affect us where we actually have more alignment. And I Mm -hmm. think this goes along with what you were saying about if you're not able to take that moment and ask yourself, like, what am I, what, what is the point of this? What are we trying Mm -hmm. to do here? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not just trying to hate people. People shouldn't just be trying to hate people and push rights away from other people. We need to be thinking about what is in the best interest of humanity of our society and be able to have the conversations that might make some of us uncomfortable, but will force the hard discussions to be had. So then we can actually find a path forward that does, to your point, satisfy the needs for the majority of people instead of the limited few who want to retain power and control. And to that extent, you had made a comment earlier about the way that you've started to approach conflict resolution and built your business around it is that, Mm -hmm. you know, it shifted the way you think about power. And I I think about this constantly. I don't really desire power. I think 
a power construct is something that inherently creates conflict because mm -hmm. as you pointed out, you know, somebody is more than somebody is less than, and it's not to be naive and think like everybody has the exact same skill sets and can do the same things and have the same level of intellect, but on a human level, and I know I keep saying that, but like, I'm really just trying to remember that I want a human level. We are all the same. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. if it's really about how we can create more opportunity for the collective, why wouldn't we want to do that? I don't yeah. want to be somebody who is the emperor of something, you know, I don't need to have minions doing things for me. I would much rather be like with a cohort of people who all have a common goal. And mm -hmm. even if that means we're doing different things to achieve that goal, at least right. we understand that like that's the desired outcome. And I feel like that's the way we should be approaching conflict, whether it's super small or mm -hmm. global insanity that we need to rectify at this point. Um, do you, do you mm -hmm. have thoughts on kind of the way that that manifests yep. in small versus, uh, I guess, micro versus macro circumstances? Well, on the micro I developed a new definition of power that I borrow from Dr. Letitia Nero, which is power is actually something, like you say, that we all inherently possess um, and we can develop mm -hmm. based on our wounds that are made healed and working for us. That's interesting. So in other words, people who have lots of privilege, who have lots of status, who have lots of social rank and lots of wealth, blah, 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 blah. They don't necessarily have the same power as somebody who's overcome addiction, homelessness, major obstacles, mental health issues. Right. Right. Um, and when you feel somebody powerful walk in the room who has that sense of self, who's very clear about who they are and what they've survived, you know it. And what I love about that definition of power is it just says, oh, Okay, because that's when we're true to ourselves and can hold that space for others and can yeah. ask for, from that sense of true self, this is what needs to happen. Yeah, in my opinion, I think that that also reflects a sense of gratitude for having gone through adversity, mm -hmm. where um, you look at people who are just power hungry. And you mentioned this at the beginning of the conversation that a lot of times when people are dealing with conflict, there's an insecurity. You feel mm -hmm. attacked and so you're defensive because you don't want somebody to object to what you think about yourself or what you're trying to project to the world that you are. Mm -hmm. And you look at global conflicts that are happening right now. Mm -hmm. Look at what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. And I see a scared little boy who's insecure whose only way of dealing with whatever emotional turmoil he has is to make other people's lives miserable or make them perish. And it's like, on a psychological level, mm -hmm. it's really simple, but the fact that so much destruction can happen as the result of such a profound insecurity is mind blowing. Meanwhile, you have people, like you said, who have risen from the ashes, who have done the work emotionally, physically, mentally, and they have put in the time and they're not the people who are doing that shit. They're not, right. they're just right. not because yes. it wouldn't be worth their time. Mm -hmm. Right. And so mm -hmm. you see the people who have come out of really difficult mm -hmm. situations, oftentimes trying to help other people. Right. And I think that's right. a really fascinating dynamic when you consider, you know, conflict at the core of that is like, you have the choice mm -hmm. to move forward with your insecurity 
and play off these really, um, I don't know, profound infantile impulses versus something that is more, as you said, truly powerful from Mm -hmm. within. Right. So the question is, can I love myself or do I have to go steal approval power or respect or status from others? Mm -hmm. If I can love myself, I, I don't have to do that second thing. Right. Well, and I, I find it interesting too, that you just use the word respect as well, because part of it is your people who, who lack that self-respect have to disillusion themselves into believing that the people that they are forcing into difficult situations, Mm -hmm. respect them when in reality, Mm -hmm. that's probably not the case either. And they also squash the ability for there to be any sort of conflict Mm -hmm. resolution, because that would then make them feel weak or, Mm -hmm. or like right. they don't have the control and power that they are telling themselves they do have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As, as a bully in recovery, I understand that dynamic well, and it's, it's a lonely, scary place. To some degree, I can definitely relate to that. Mm-hmm. I feel like when I was younger, I really wanted to be able to win the argument. Um, mm-hmm. I got grounded a lot. My mom would always see us to have the last word, um, which is fair and also accurate. And I think that the older that I got, the more I started noticing that I didn't feel good after Mm -hmm. I responded Mm -hmm. the way that I did. And when I started recognizing that the way that I was reacting didn't reflect a positive feeling, then the only thing that I could do to resolve that was react differently. Because I couldn't just be like, oh, well, I don't care that I did that. I'm still going to feel great about myself. Like, that's not how that works. I was plagued by that. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. what advice do you have for somebody who tends to be more of an explosive conflict? Aggressive reactive. Aggressive reactive. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think is good advice for somebody who tends to act on that impulse? The hardest thing for me was really getting to a place where I didn't let myself go there immediately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we already talked about some things you can do as far as the biological hack Mm -hmm. so that you don't feel so reactive and you don't rush into that mammalian defense mode. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as how you take care of yourself, that's the most important thing. Number one, you, you have to be really good at loving on yourself because a lot of the ways that I was being reactive were basically deflecting and, and not allowing other people to choose me. Right. They were, they were about, I will do it this way and you will do it this way. And everybody's going to follow my lead because Mm -hmm. I didn't believe I had value unless I was trooping the trail and, and making everything happen. Right. Yeah. I I created value through my actions and through my control of the situation, as opposed to just for being who I was. That's so, that's so perceptive. It made me reflect and think about the fact that for me, it was deflecting sort of the blame and not Mm -hmm. taking ownership of the accountability. So Mm -hmm. if I did something that was wrong or wasn't a good judgment call, whatever it might be wrong, being sort of a very subjective thing. Sure. um, It was so hard for me, even if I knew I was wrong to admit that. And that creates conflict in and of itself because you're like, well, I don't want to admit that I was wrong. So I'm going to go down swinging, right? Metaphorically. Right. And, and you end up on these dead end paths that you can mm-hmm. no longer justify 
Right. But because that one little thing you did back there, you don't want to admit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and it really just kind of goes to show how far we're willing to go to justify, as you said earlier, our own beliefs about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so once it's about loving yourself enough, respecting yourself enough, and also that willingness to be honest with yourself, even and especially when it's uncomfortable, because yeah. nobody wants to be wrong. Right. But right. nobody's always right. So yeah. get on board. <laughs> One of right. these days, you're going to have to face that. And discomfort is that place where we grow. We, yeah. ne- we never grow when everything's comfortable. We mm-hmm. never grow when everything's going our way. <laughs> <laughs> True words have never been spoken. I can attest to that. So when you start working with a group of people, what's the initial event to kind of get everybody invested in what you're doing? What is that onboarding like? Well, typically people will approach me after some, some incident has occurred that Mm -hmm. scared everybody, like some type of conflict just boiled over in their lobby or whatever. And they're just like, oh my gosh, we, we need to know how to handle this. This was scary. And so the first thing I often do is I'll debrief and sometimes it's too raw. Sometimes it's too fresh and they're not ready for me to talk about that thing, but they're ready to talk about these other things. So we'll start with conflict light, you know, oh, so what are some of the more minor situations that might come up that we can talk about? Mm -hmm. Something more palatable. Something more palatable. So we, you know, come in and we do some coaching and some skills. Um, I have an online course that is kind of like a choose your own adventure based on those five conflict styles. Mm -hmm. So depending on how you answer the first question determines which conflict style you have. And that's then your learning path. And you're shown videos of people behaving very, very badly. <laughs> well, that's great, though. I love that you thought to do it that way because mm-hmm. we all know how we react. Yes, yes. Um, and by showing them these videos, I, I hope to give everybody permissions like, well, we all do this. It's a human thing for us to behave poorly. And what does it feel like in your body when that's going on? Mm-hmm. And what would you have wanted somebody to do last time you were that person, right? Last time Definitely. you were off the hook. And it really helps, I think, humanize what's, you know, what's possible for folks. So I'll, I'll share the video links with the team. They'll do the training and then we'll get everybody back together again. And we'll do some scenarios and like, okay, so if this happens, what will you do? And we just basically workshop out all of the types of situations that come up in their workplace. And it's interesting whether I'm in a doctor's office, a five-star hotel, a bar, it, it really like conflict always follows the same pattern. Sometimes entitlements at play, sometimes it's not, sometimes sexual harassment's at play, but it always follows the same pattern as far as these are the ways to lean in while you are very firm in what your boundaries are. And most humans, when you do that for them, are just so grateful that they've just behaved like a butt. Yet you're able to show them compassion and have clear boundaries for them. I mean, that's that's what we're all hungry for is like, can you see me even when I'm like this? Even when I'm not the best version of myself, even yeah. when I don't like myself or how I responded. And Mm -hmm. something that you just said made me think, do you feel like 
there are certain demographics that are more receptive to the type of training that you do versus others. I guess my my big question is probably men versus women, even right. though I know there's a variety of genders, but like if we look at the binary gender sure. construct and the way that, especially with kind of the concept of toxic masculinity mm -hmm. and knowing that that's something that is very pervasive, what is it like for you in those mm -hmm. situations? And do you see a difference in how people respond to the trainings or right. just in general, the concept of the conflict resolution? People who are like really identified with a masculine energy, mm -hmm. I often use different language with them. And I find that there's like a sigh of relief because what I'm talking about doesn't require them to be bouncers. doesn't require them to be like these big burly, like, oh, I got to go toe to toe. Right. Mm -hmm. Because what I'm training them is nonviolence. Right. And de-escalation so, essentially. So there's, you know, after I get over their suspicion, like, oh, this will never work after I <laughs> show them. Yes, it will. <laughs> after that happens, there's a relief. Um, for women, there's a different level of suspicion, at least female identified people or people who, who see themselves as more passive in the face of conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and that is like the suspicion, like, well, people don't listen to me anyway. Why would they start listening now? Right. Well, so it's part of the reason it sounds like maybe that conflict happens there is, as you said, that feeling of not being heard or seen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also ways that uh, female identified people have have been socialized that we are poor at conflict because with it, we can't physically handle it. Therefore, we're not considered a threat. Therefore, we're not considered a, a viable voice in a solution. But the truth is, we've also been socialized that people's um, well-being and the, the well-being of the whole group is our responsibility. So women often have a better understanding of what this um, out-of-control, irate person needs. They often have a better capacity to lean in, and they definitely have a better capacity if they're in a female-appearing body to not look like they're a physical threat. Because if you look like you're a physical threat, what's the first thing that this aggravated person is going to do? They're going to just like puff up some more, right? Yeah, posture. Yeah. <laughs> right? So female identified, female appearing people have some advantages, but we've been socialized to like make ourselves small. Yeah. It makes me wonder also how much that will change moving forward as so many more men that I've spoken with, even just through the podcast and people in my life are coming to terms with the fact that sort of that historic machismo mentality is falling by the wayside and mm -hmm. that there's on the flip side of that, women are being more empowered. Right. And it's sort of like we're bridging that gap and we're able to bring people closer together in how to resolve conflict because as you said earlier and, and this is something that I wholeheartedly believe is that it really is about responding with as much compassion as possible because responding with compassion and listening with compassion um, really help build empathy and empathy is the root of of all conflict mm -hmm. resolution mm -hmm. in in my mind yep yep um, and I would add one little caveat is that when we're resolving conflict with somebody who has more points or less points than us on that social hierarchy, mm -hmm. 
that there's a possibility that we can't empathize. There's a possibility that we don't have enough lived experience to really understand what's going on with this other person. Mm -hmm. And I just like ask people, hey, if you have the most points in this equation, I need you to step back and I need you to be really humble in what you say to them. And if you have the least points, I need you to go get a friend because it's not your job to fix their sexism, to fix their racism, to fix their whatever, right? Because there there are some things that just are never going to work well. One, we're also our own human beings, right? So you can't Mm -hmm. hold yourself responsible for somebody else's ability to evolve in a positive direction. Mm -hmm. And it also, I think, it begs the question a little bit, do you feel like people who go down that path of really trying to kind of modify other people's behavior as part of a conflict mm. um, end up seeing, I guess, the result that they want ultimately? Or do you find that they're more stalled by that attempt to to create, I right. guess, to manufacture the desired result? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see a lot of that in reference to the cancel culture that's going on, mm-hmm. where um, there's like this great woke off that's going <laughs> among the white people, like like that we're actively competing with each other for the right terminology and the mm-hmm. right phraseology. And, and I just have to like say, oh, you know, all of us European descendant folks, we have to remember that we were raised in a place where if you didn't grow your crops between this day and this day, your family would starve. Like there's a reason why, why we had to plan very well and why we're kind of competitive mm-hmm. because our survival depended on it. Yeah. But, that's, that's an interesting point. But just because that's a kind of a Euro white tendency doesn't mean we have to take it out on each other because people of color, i.e. the global majority, they have something to teach us. <laughs> no kidding. We need to, we need to like stop this whole, this whole thing. And, and when you talk about modifying behavior, that's the thing that I see the most right now that I find really annoying uh, as far as behavior modification. But when I see the, a person who says, hey, here's something that I believe and you don't have to believe it, but here's why this is important to me. This is who I am as a person. And this is a choice you have. I don't consider that behavior modification. I consider that just being a respectful invitation. I like how you referred to that as an invitation. And I Mm -hmm. also feel like that you had mentioned just a moment ago that there are certain scenarios in which we can't empathize. We haven't experienced, we haven't had the same lived experiences as other people. I also think that what you just described is a way of helping create more empathy mm-hmm. because for us to show up fully and say how we feel and say what we need or listen and hear that from somebody else, like those are data points that are contributing to our emotional growth and overall well being. And mm-hmm. the more that we can do that and we can have those hard conversations, those conversations where it's like, yep. I'm a basic white bitch. You know, I I know it. I know that I was raised in the suburbs. Um, But at the same time, you know, I was watching something the other day. Um, I'm a history nerd. So I was watching something around Italian-Americans and just the the racism that occurred for Italian-Americans. It wasn't like we weren't all just like categorically white Mm -hmm. from the get, you know. And so 
I think part of it is also coming back to that sense of, while again, we are all one in a very meaningful, organic, universal way, we've also had so much generational trauma that has compounded and led mm -hmm. us to where we are today. And so what is, I think maybe a little bit, both sides of the coin, fortunate and unfortunate is that because of that compound effect, we are now the generations that are responsible for healing it and yeah. at least getting the ball rolling on it and mm -hmm. breaking those generational cycles and moving forward with as much as possible that empathy for the people around us, for ourselves and for the history mm -hmm. that led us to this place to begin with. And so yeah. I really value what you're doing on such a personal level and also just a societal level because the more people like yourself who are able to help guide us through these hard conversations, help navigate those moments of discomfort, as you said, those are what really change the way we show up and allow us to make a more meaningful impact for the people around us in our own lives. We get to wake up feeling like better human beings, knowing that we weren't just disrespectful or careless with how somebody else felt because of something we did or an interaction we had. Mm -hmm. So as we're rounding out the conversation here, Christine, is there anything else you'd like to share with listeners that's important for you? And can you tell listeners where they can learn more about you and your business? Sure. Thank you. One thing I would like to give your listeners is my difficult conversation flowchart. Amazing. Yeah. Yes, please. It just like walks you through, okay, do I have the resources for this conversation? Check, check, check. You know, like all of the boxes are there. Um, my website is www.seattleconflictresolution.com. And I do have those training videos coming out. I would love to make sure that your listeners get a discount. So they just need to drop me an email and say, Hey, I know you from who the fuck, because yeah, like, I really believe in the work that, that your podcast is doing. Thank you so much, Christine. I appreciate it. And I really am so glad we had this opportunity to connect. And so I could learn more about what you're doing. It really has been an honor to hear your approach and to just be able to share your message with people. I'm so excited for listeners to be able to get the information that you've shared and then also have that added advantage of getting some of the content that you've created. So thank you so much for including that. Of course. All right, gang, that's all for this episode of Who the Fuck. If you want to learn more about Christine, as she said, you can find her website at seattleconflictresolution.com. Until next time, we'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of Her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast 
where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Act.